when they go up out of the colony, they do a little circle around the colony to figure out where they are, and then they, they head in the direction of, of where they've been before to collect food. And they can adjust that as well for the time of day as the sun is moving. Yes. That is incredible. It is incredible. I agree with you. You know, th these things are things that make our life richer, right? They are, the, the beauty of the natural world is, is life itself. Thank you so much, Jerry, for joining me on, uh, on the podcast. Um, and well, I'm really, really excited to, to dive in. Um, I think what's really cool about um, bees is that we all sort of have a, a, a bee story, right? We all have an understanding of bees. We all have a memory of where we stung, where we almost stung. There was that time where it went up my skirt. And, um, you know, we've all got this kind of relationship with bees. But um, you're a, an insect neuroethologist at mm -hmm. Oxford, right? Perfect. Um, <laughs> and so I guess you you see them a completely different way. Um, what, how did you sort of get into... To thinking about bees and, and getting interested in bees? Um, I started with an interest in insects because I was interested in their relationship with plants. Mm -hmm. uh, my undergraduate degree is in botany and I plants and, and insects have a really complicated and long and very fascinating history and it's, uh, it was a natural uh, step for me to start to start with herbivores, which are the, the ones that destroy plants. They're really important for agriculture. They, you know, we, are, we spend a lot of money trying to develop means of destroying them because of our crops. And I was really interested in the chemical defenses of plants and how plants uh, try to, to prevent herbivores from eating leaves. And that's what I studied when I was a graduate student uh, here at the University of Oxford. Mm -hmm. I, I had the opportunity to change direction when I was a postdoc, and I went to study bee biology at Ohio State University with Brian Smith. And he was studying the bee sense of smell. So it was a pretty big change from what I had been doing to to a completely new organism doing something totally different. Uh, but it was a very uh, um, lucky change, I would say, because uh, bees are really fascinating for many different reasons. There are all kinds of things that you can study about their biology. They're, you're not limited to their interaction with plants, but it's still something that I've pursued during my academic career, was trying to understand this relationship between bees and plants, and how bees meet their nutritional needs from the floral resources produced by plants like nectar and pollen, but also how plants manipulate bees uh, to do what they want, which is to have sex, basically. So it's, it's interesting from both perspectives. Um, bees need food, plants need sex, and bees are a great vector for sex for them. It's, it's incredible. I mean, when you when you think about like diving into this world of, um, you know, the way that they see, how do they see plants? How do they sort of interact with them? Um, you know, 
give us the basics and then dive into something. So we think that, that this relationship between plants and uh, insect pollinators evolved about 120 million years ago. And that it evolved from uh, uh, cycadic type plants, which are these kind of ancient looking palmish things that were wind pollinated and beetles that would consume the pollen and move from one plant to the next and eat pollen. Pollen is very rich. Pollen has a lot of protein, it has a lot of fat, uh, it has all kinds of interesting antioxidants in it. And so, and these are things that the male gamete of the plant need when it lands on the stigma of a receptive flower uh, because that helps to fuel um, the, the sperm basically to make its way to the ovary. So mm -hmm. pollen is a really rich source of nutrients and uh, it was, it's not surprising in a way that insects would want to eat it because it's really, it, it really quite good. You don't need to eat a lot of it to get what you need. Right. So um, that's how we think this, uh, this started in evolutionary history. And bees are evolved from uh, a lineage of wasps. They, they were related to uh, parasitoid wasps that uh, sting insect prey and lay an egg in it or put venom in it and then take the prey back to feed to their larvae. It's quite grim, actually. Um, the parasitoid wasps are like the aliens of the insect world. You know, they, the, the female lays the egg in the caterpillar and then the egg eats the inside of the caterpillar out and pops out, you know, as an adult. It's, yeah, it's grim. There are still species that do that. Right? Oh, there are loads, millions. Right. So, yeah, but uh, bees evolved from this lineage. We actually think they evolved from um, a type of wasp which... Uh, predates spiders, so sphecid wasps, which do exactly that. They've, they, I don't know if you've seen these spider hunting wasps. They, they um, find a spider, they use their ovipositor, which is like the sharp stinger barb at the end of their abdomen, to inject venom into the spider, and then the spider gets inert, and the live but paralyzed spider gets dragged off to a burrow where the, the wasp feeds it to its larva. So it's grim. <laughs> but um, bees have... They have these same sorts of traits, though. They have an ovipositor um, with a venom, which they can use, and which but they have adapted to a totally different purpose, although it is used for defense in the case mm -hmm. of the honeybee. Uh, it, um, they have many of these same traits. Now, um, plants produce pollen to reproduce. It's the male gamete. The female gamete is found in the ovary. The plants... Um, their fitness is increased by outcrossing. So in any species, any species that has sex basically is, is um, sharing genes. And mm -hmm. this diversity of genes uh, makes it possible for there to be diversity in the phenotypes of a species, which allow them to adapt to uh, changing environmental conditions or to colonize new places, to overcome mutations. There are many good reasons to want to be able to outcross. And if uh, an insect lands on a plant and it gets pollen on itself, and then it goes to another plant of the same species, and it takes that pollen and it deposits it on the plant, it's quite an efficient way of getting pollen from one place to another. Mm -hmm. And so uh, an insect vector doesn't take a lot of pollen, a little bit's there, but it's gone to, let's say, 20 different plants in the space of an hour. And 
it, they have deposited some pollen grains on every one of those, meaning that it, the potential for sex is like having sex with 20 different uh, individuals that then have your offspring. Mm -hmm. So it's, it really increases the potential for outcrossing in a plant population, which drives speciation in plant populations as well. So diversification and speciation. And we, there was this huge increase in, in plant diversity that happened about 80 million years ago called the eudicot um, diversification. And we think that um, bees becoming pollinators was simultaneous with this eudicot diversification. In other words, bees started switching to eating pollen and using it to provision their larvae. And at that time, they started to drive diversification in plants. Um, because they are such efficient vectors of, of outcrossing and of, of fertilization, it means you don't have to produce very much pollen to be able to have sex with all these individuals. And that's right. in contrast to your, your basic pine tree, which is wind pollinated and which produces just tons of pollen in the springtime, right? So it has to saturate the air with pollen in order that, the, that it might have a pollen grain land on a receptive stigma of another plant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can see that actually there's a huge advantage to a plant to having a little insect vector transmitting pollen from one flower to the Doing next. Doing the job for it, right? Right. And so what happened is, you know, you get the situation where it becomes beneficial for an animal to, to get its nutrient needs met by this plant's um, pollen. So it goes there, mm -hmm. and the plants that are able to do this outcrossing then can outcompete other plants. So they have these traits which attract the pollinators, mm -hmm. and the pollinators themselves actually drive those traits. And one of the important traits that was um, uh, basically driven by pollinators was the production of nectar. So nectar mm -hmm. is produced by flowers for no other reason than to attract a bee pollinator or an insect pollinator. It is, mm -hmm. It's a gift um, from the plant to say, come over here. Okay. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> and so, um, and it's fuel. So it actually also is a very rich gift that helps the pollinator to be able to fuel flight because flight's very expensive. So it takes a lot of energy and it, it really, uh, especially if you're going out and, and visiting a lot of plants you, and you're not really investing um, your energy in your offspring. So mm. it's, it really is a very, uh, it's that it's co-evolved both to fuel pollinators and to attract them to come to the plant in the first place. So right. it's very interesting to look at the composition of nectar and to find out more about it and what, what it is that, that plants do to, to bring their pollinators closer, right? To attract as many, um, and the most efficient pollinators that they can get. Uh, because very often it's about efficiency, really. They don't want to give up a lot of pollen to do their outcrossing. They don't really yeah. want the pollinator even to eat the pollen because it's their, you know, it's like it's their sperm, basically. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, it's expensive. Um, mm -hmm. Nectar's cheap. So a plant can produce tons of carbohydrates, and it does so all the time through photosynthesis. But pollen's full of protein and, and um, fats, which are much more expensive to produce. So mm -hmm. um, there's a kind of trade-off there. On, uh, on the other hand, bees are very good pollinators. So um, in some cases, you will, uh, you will see that there are plant species where they don't actually produce nectar as a gift for a pollinator, but their pollen is produced in copious amounts, and it's very rich and available for a short time. So the, right. the, the pollinators really seek it, and they really want it. And um, an orchid is a very good example of that. Orchids, the pollinator doesn't necessarily eat the pollen of an orchid, but the orchid has this packet that it, it gives, that it smacks onto the back of a pollinator. It doesn't produce a lot of pollen, but just a little. And that's, um, it has a very special mechanism for trans transporting 
that, pol that pollen packet to another, another flower of the same species. So do bees like have favorite kinds of species that they'll go to or, you know, a bee of the world, um, you know, healthy or able to get more of the different kinds of nutrients or is it kind of general, like, like how we eat, our diets are different, but there are multiple That's ways. That's a really that great question that people are trying to answer now. Right. It's a really, really great question. Um, so I, I think it's a bit of both. And it depends on the bee species. Some species have specialized on the, the floral resources produced by only a few different kinds of plants, but there are drawbacks to doing this. Mm -hmm. Flowers are ephemeral, right? They, they come and go, and they're not present all the time necessarily, unless you're in the tropics, there's some plant species flower all the time. Mm. Um, so if you choose to specialize on a certain plant species, it has to be abundant, you know, it has to be a present, it has to be enough to support a population of animals. And, but there are some species in the, the temperate zone which have specialized on a discrete number of plant species. And that's because it's a little niche that they can colonize where they don't have to compete with other pollinators for access to those resources. Right, okay. Most pollinators, like your average honeybee, uh, they are generalists and they will take what they can get, but even generalists don't eat everything. So there are some pollen which is toxic, which have nasty compounds or is spiky and nasty and they, won't, they don't like to collect it and they won't collect it, or it's just mm -hmm. not very nutritious. Um, but, and there are some types of pollen that they will go crazy for, that they, they love the smell of, that has compounds that they need, that they'll compete to get to. And I've seen it. I've seen bees on a cucumber flower or a squash blossom in a scrum to try to get to the pollen. They throw each other off trying to, trying, trying to grab the pollen. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, the same, same also of uh, coffee flowers, actually. I, I was quite interested in, in um, coffee plants and... Um, for a number of different reasons, which I can tell you later. Um, mm. But coffee has must have very good pollen because the, the pollinators that come to coffee flowers get in a scrum, and I have some video footage of this. It's really quite funny. They're just oh, I'd love to see that. If you could send that, that would be so Yeah, cool. I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but the, so the, this, this relationship between plants and pollinators is nuanced. It's evolved mm. over millions of years. It's really beautiful, and it's what's driven diversification of floral signals. So that's originally what I had been interested to study. I wanted to know more, and the lab that I was in was interested in floral scent and how bees learn about floral scent. How, do they, how can they dis distinguish the scent of one species' flowers from another species' flowers, and how does their brain work? That was really what I was interested in, because um, the olfactory systems of insects and mammals are, are very similar in terms really? of their, okay. their structure and design, which means that you can study an insect and the principles that you learn about the olfactory system in an insect can really elucidate a lot about what's happening in a mammal. And you don't have to do all the horrible kind of nasty surgery to the mouse to understand okay. it. So when, when you say floral scents, they are smelling it in a similar way to we do? They have a, an olfactory system that is set up in a way that allows them to perceive scent um, that is similar to the way that our olfactory system operates. Now, it may not smell mm. the same to them, right? This is a bit of the sort of the philosophical right. question about do you see green the same way that I do? But, right, right. Um, and in fact, they have different receptors and different numbers of receptors and, and a slightly different configuration. But it's not... It, it is fundamentally... Um, its design is similar in principle. So the circuits that are 
part of the brain that allows us to do an olfactory computation that tells us that this is Chanel number five are the same <laughs> in the bee. They have, a, they're doing the same kind of thing with that complex blend to form a percept, um, which is greater than the sum of its parts. Wow. I mean, is there other ways that they're sort of communicating or working with flowers that we wouldn't really be able to understand? I think their visual system is quite different. So mm -hmm. I think that they see, we know that they see colors differently, that they have four, um, they have four different uh, sensitivities to four different wavelengths. We have three, they have four. Um, so they, they probably see colors and flowers and the structure of flowers in a way that's like dazzling and much more intense than we do. Right. Um, is, is there interpretations of that, like online? Can we have There are, person? actually. Lars Chitka has studied this, and I think, I believe, he's at um, Queen Mary University of London, and he has some okay. models for it, and actually I believe he's written some, some uh, reviews about that if you were interested. Um, yeah. He might be somebody that you'd be interested to talk to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably. I think so. Yeah. I'll have a look at that. So, I mean, so the fourth way way that they see the world is just more? I mean, how does that work? It's basically, it gives them a, a our visual system. And again, you'll have to forgive me. I'm not a visual neuroscientist. And so <laughs> I'm probably saying all of this incorrectly. Um, we have um, uh, cones which are sensitive to three different wavelengths basically over a very wide spectrum they're they're not they they're tuned to a specific wavelength but they they also perceive others and it's the combination of these three that allows us to see the colors that we see they're assembled by our brain so the the receptors in our retina respond to these wavelengths of light and the impulses that are are sent from the the retina and what's behind it um, are then assembled into color that our brain perceives. Okay, it's very complicated, actually. It's not yeah. straightforward. What happens at the, at the periphery is not what, what happens up here. So there's a whole bunch of, of computation that goes on. Right. In, in bees, imagine that you have a sensitivity to yet another wavelength. It means basically mm -hmm. that you, can, you have a, a finer-grained definition of color. It means that you, your, your blue-greens are going to be more bluey and more greeny, and they might have something that's totally different that we can't even imagine, like a right. turquoise ultraviolet, weird color, right, that we just, like, we just can't imagine because we, yeah. we see and colors are, are already defined for us. Yeah. So um, they, they just have a... There are some insects or actually other arthropods which have nine different um, types of, of cone, yeah, their uh, stomatopods are are very sensitive to color, and they live in the sea, and but not so far under the sea that they don't get to you know, all the wavelengths of light. And mm -hmm. um, but they they have these incredibly uh, complex visual displays, and and uh, sexual selection in that case is probably driven that between the members of the that species, right? They're using these signals to see each other. In bees, mm -hmm. it's it's the color vision that they have is definitely been driven by the floral signals produced by plants. So it's something about plants and the way that they look if we were to, to able to see all of these different kinds of wavelengths that has changed the way that the bees have to navigate the world. Yeah, so these the a flower is um, a billboard advertisement of food, basically. Mm -hmm saying, mm -hmm. come here and take this nectar and we're, I'm right here, come over here. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and because plants are competing for the attention of pollinators, the big billboard with the beautiful scent and the, the, 
bright nectar guides and the you know strong colors and the shape and everything all those things they are an advertisement from afar so the bee can see it and when the bee lands there they're getting this huge visual sensory overload right mm -hmm. of information which they're using which they they which helps them to form a memory of the quality of the experience that they have so imagine that they're you're a customer and you're buying something and you have this chocolate and it's accompanied by this visual display and this sense sensory that's you know this beautiful smell mm -hmm. and you have this chocolate and um there are loads of chocolate vendors and they want to to entice you to come and spend your money but you can't buy from all of them you're just going to buy from one right mm -hmm. so um the plant wants to to help you to remember that their chocolate is best okay so they do that with visual display, they do it with scent, and they do it with the quality of the food that they give to you too. So it's, it's all of these things all at once trying to sell you, come back over here. Okay, they're Not selling- like billboards where it's branding and <laughs> it's something like well, They're that. selling they... the same thing, it's the same thing. It's ultimately, it's yeah. sex for the plant. For us, we get enticed into it believing that we're gonna be more rich, more beautiful, yeah. more more this, more healthy, right? So yeah. it's the same kind of sales that's happening, mm -hmm. right? It's the it's the use of sensory signaling to manipulate the the outcome for mm -hmm. the one that's doing the signaling, mm -hmm. and uh, so so visual displays of flowers they definitely have been driven by pollinators, and in part um, they are colors that those pollinators like, they are easy for them to see, um, they are, are easy to distinguish from other plants, and so um, plants might want to be able to infiltrate the signals of other plants, especially if they're cheap and they don't want to produce a lot of nectar. If they mm -hmm. have a signal that looks a lot like another plant that produces loads of nectar, a cheap way to get visitation is to, you know, just have a, a similar visual signal. And then yeah. if there's a lot of competition, you get drift from the pollinator population into that plant population and you get your outcrossing for nothing. Right, so, that like happens. an own brand ripoff. Yes, exactly. Still, people will still buy it. I yeah, think. so the, there are orchids that do this. Um, mm -hmm. Even in the UK, there are orchids that do this that produce no nectar, but they have visual display that's quite attractive to a bee. Mm -hmm. So, And plants like this often live in areas where it's very hard to survive. So... You know, they're, they're in this trade-off constantly, you know, between what they have to do to have sex versus, you know, what they have to do to produce seeds. So, right, right. And that's the, the same trade-off every, every organism faces, basically. Right. Yes. I, how much of um, sort of like fruit and vegetables are floral and, and, and bees work with? Or is it percentage-wise percentage for the bees... Is it more sort of flowers like orchids or, or, or you were talking earlier about sort of cucumbers and things like that? So it, we um, agronomists estimate that approximately one third of all the food we eat needs some form of pollination by mm -hmm. an insect pollinator of some kind. So mm -hmm. all your nut crops, fruits, vegetables, all of these things are all of it, all of them. But tomatoes, right, uh, cherries, strawberries, almonds. They're all produced by pollination. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, cereal crops, they are mainly from the grass family and they are wind pollinated. So mm -hmm. uh, most cereals, you know, we eat a lot of cereal to survive. So mm. it's, it, they are not dependent on pollination. But a lot of the things that we care about because they're highly nutritious, they taste good and they're an important part of our diet, 
mm. um, are, are pollinated. Coffee, for example, is something that is, is pollinated by insects. Um, mm-hmm. Almonds are dependent on insect pollination. You don't, you don't set seed in an almond crop unless a pollinator visits the plant. So, right. And it's a huge industry in California. Yes, yeah, I think I've heard about it. And for the bees, is it does it make up a large part of their diet, or are they quite happy if they are one hundred percent on on flowers? So, um, a particular plant species pollen may not have all the nutrients that a particular pollinator would need. So, some plant species pollen is very rich and has a lot of protein, but it may not have the right kind of fat. Mm-hmm. Other plant species might have the right kinds of fats, but not be very proteinaceous. Others might have, still have uh, antioxidants with the, that the insect needs, which help it to combat viruses or other kinds of pathogen. So uh, the few studies that have addressed this have shown that a mixed floral diet for a honeybee colony improves its health. And, but we, and we believe that it's because most plant species pollen is not quite sufficient. But that's not entirely true. There are some plant species that have quite good pollen, and if they can just collect enough of it, it's okay. Mm-hmm. But in okay. general, the best strategy is to diversify, to yeah. collect as much as you can in the environment, and for yeah. as long as you can, because... Again, flowers are ephemeral. They only last for a short period. You exploit that resource and then you move to a different species. And this mm-hmm. ephemerality, um, combined with this diet of, of floral resources, has driven the brain of bees to become something really quite special. So most insects, they can learn, they can do what they need to do, but mm-hmm. bees are very smart. And bees learn and remember floral cues very quickly and they retain that memory for quite a long time. So, mm. and they've done that, they've evolved that ability in order to exploit those resources when they are present. And they come back and they communicate that within the colony. So in, in a honeybee colony, it's a highly evolved organism where you have individuals going out into the landscape, learning floral signals, collecting loads of food, bringing it back, and then telling everyone else where to go. So they actually developed a language that communicates both direction and distance to a floral source and its quality. So they, could, they do this waggle dance where they, they vigorously dance, and during the dance they are communicating how good the food is. So oh, they waggle it, harder when it's better. I've heard of this. They, they, sort of, they are able to communicate what direction and how far, but also how good, how good what it is out there. So it's not just exactly. like, oh, you know, there's a little bit over in that direction about a mile away. It's like, oh, we need to go that way. Fast. <laughs> Right. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. That's so incredible. I mean, one one thing um, that this made me think of. So, yes, they they are seeing things differently, probably smelling things, tasting things differently to us. But, um, I mean, I don't know if it's just because I use Google Maps all the time, but I, can't, I get lost so much. How do bees navigate the world? Is that, do they have another sense or are they just because because they're just really skilled at it in, so in some ways. So it, it, it is in part skill, right? They mm-hmm. do learn landmarks, um, but they also really? rely... Yeah, they can learn landmarks. Yeah. Um, so but they, they, they can say there's a lake right there and there's some, there's some goodies around it. Um, I'm not sure how well they can communicate those landmarks <laughs> when they do the waggle dance, but they learn them, right, in their own memory. 
Um, but they, uh, they use the sun to orient, and that's how the waggle dance is, is calculated within the colony. So they, they, they can see polarized light. Um, it's difficult for us to see polarized light. We don't rely on it. Polarized light means directional light. And if you buy, you know, special sunglasses with nice lenses, you, you will buy polarized um, sunglasses, which basically they take out all the scattered light and they let it let only in the, the photons, which are traveling in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And so bees have, a, um, have eyes that allow them to perceive the direction of light, the polarization of light from the sun. And they, okay. they use this then to orient with respect to the the position of the sun and the horizon and they mm-hmm. can communicate the direction based on, on on what they learn about the position of the sun relative to a food source so when they go up out of the colony they do a little circle around the colony to figure out where they are and then they they head in the direction of of where they've been before to collect food and they can adjust that as well for the time of day as the sun is moving yes that is incredible. It is incredible. I agree with you. And Carl von Frisch won the Nobel Prize because he figured it out. <laughs> How did he figure that out? When was this? How long ago have we known? Well, he did this most of his work in the 1930s and 40s. And, and in the 20s, actually, he was a, uh, a lecturer in Austria in the 1920s. And he, well, actually, if it's, it's true that he did most of his, his research in the 1920s, but he carried on in the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. He didn't win the Nobel Prize until 1970. And he shared that with... Uh, Nicholas Timbergen and uh, um, Conrad Lawrence. I always forget Conrad Lawrence, <laughs> but they were they were studying animal behavior too, and uh, oh. Conrad Lawrence was studying imprinting behavior in chicks, and oh, Nico right. Timbergen was was studying um, sign stimuli and um, instinct in birds, and in other right. insects like like wasps. Right. So this is when we started breaking through this deeper understanding into worlds of human uh, animal behavior that we didn't really yeah their, even their research was for. really really pushing what we knew about and understood about the animal brain and showing that animals do quite sophisticated things even mm. bees do quite sophisticated things they were always thought to be like little robots but they are definitely yeah. not robots yeah yeah i, I mean i was gonna at least not robots it. in the in the most primitive sense robots now yeah, are becoming yeah. so sophisticated that they'll be more like us before we know it Yes, that is true. And they're going to be able to learn better than us and maybe better than the bees. So you said that they, they come back and they communicate and, you know, they also have um, the ability to, to remember things. How long do bees live? How many generations can there be in one hive? Like is, is a generational sharing and, and long term memory a part of it or is it all quite new? each time? That's a great question. Um, and it's a question I think that um, there's not a deeply satisfying answer to. The, the easy answer to it is that um, each generation's learning this information anew. There mm-hmm. are some things which are transmitted and which, which are encoded basically through selection, genetic selection. But, but as individuals, when they are learning about food and where to find that food and things like that, that happens basically every generation that comes through mm. your average worker honeybee lives maybe a month so oh, really? it, it takes it takes approximately 21 days to grow to an adult and it will be another 21 days of adulthood probably that they'll live in midsummer because 
Um, they stay in the colony for about two weeks, and then that, that final week that they go out to forage is quite quite intense. They can probably live maybe longer than one week, but if they're, flat, if they're foraging intensely, um, it wears them out. Their wings wear out, they, it's metabolically expensive, and they'll eventually die from it. Right. Um, yeah, it's very treacherous for a bee to collect food. It's, it's hard work. Um, the weather's bad. There mm. are lots of predators. There are all kinds of things that can kill you. Um, and they can go a significant distance, right? Yeah, they can go five kilometers from their colony to collect food. Right. So it, it's really, it, it's a very um, physically demanding thing to do. Mm. Um, but they, the things that they learn, they transmit within the colony through the waggle dance. The others learn it through their experience and they come back and communicate it. But they don't have a written record, basically, of, mm. of history. Any history that they carry with them is imprinted, basically, through their genes. Um, there's, there are some researchers who are interested to know how... Um, immune challenge has affected a queen because a queen is the longest lived individual in the colony and she can live up to th three years. You know, if she's a strong queen and the colony strong, um, that queen okay. can live for many generations of bees. But So she hibernates over the winter within a colony and yes. a few, few bees? Yeah, so several hundred will, I mean, most of the bees try to live over the winter. Many die from the cold. They die from mm -hmm. starvation, but they stay together in a, in a tight bundle and, and produce heat. And mm -hmm. they, that's how they stay warm through the winter. And they, they have stored honey, so they eat the honey to, to shiver and stay warm. And they protect the queen. Okay. And, and, and then she, is there any sort of research into what she can share with a colony the next time and the next time? or? So there is some, some information um, that some researchers on, on bee health are trying to understand about um, how immune challenge to that queen can be transmitted um, to her offspring to, mm -hmm. to, to essentially prime them to be more, more protected. The same way that colostrum in a mammal um, is uh, basically an immune priming of a mammalian mother to her child or her offspring through her milk. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, but it, it, it's still early days. There, there's some evidence that that's the case. But I would say that's really the only, only form of memory that I can, I can pinpoint where you would say you would be getting um, a cross-generational transmission of information. Right. How can we even test for that? How can you even test to see, like, what is being learned and what is sort of instinctual in something that only lives for a month or six weeks? So, um, do you know uh, Pavlov's dog and the, the story of Pavlov? The sal salivating dog? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um, Pavlov was uh, really one of the first people to very carefully study learning in animals, and mm -hmm. or learning in anything, really. Um, and he, he trained dogs to salivate, expecting food, when he rang mm -hmm. a bell. So he'd ring the bell give them some food, ring, food, ring, food, and then whenever that dog heard that bell, start to salivate. And he would keep them hungry, right, so that he could measure, you know, that they were salivating. Mm. And um, that type of conditioning where you have a signal that the animal perceives, in that case an auditory stimulus, and mm -hmm. a food which is a meaningful stimulus to which you have an instinctual response, um, the the ability of the brain to make the pairing between that sensory signal that previously had no meaning and the, the food, which is something that you are born knowing is food, um, is 
is called simple associative learning. And mm -hmm. uh, the ability to do that, most animals have, uh, because it's very adaptive. You, you mm -hmm. have to be able to predict where you're going to be able to find food. And if there are cues that you can associate with the presence of food and its abundance, then you are more adapted to an environment. You can exploit that food faster and better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that's essentially what bees are doing when they're out flying around visiting flowers. They see a flower, they visit it, they see if there's food there. If there is and it's good, they associate the visual and olfactory cues that are present there with the presence of food. And they do it very okay. quickly. So a dog okay. may, you know, if you've ever tried to train a dog, dogs take a while to train to do anything. Um, <laughs> in part because they're fat. <laughs> most, most pets are fat. Um, yeah. But, um, They're cool. <laughs> yeah. They don't need to do anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, a foraging honeybee can, can learn in one trial. In three trials, she'll learn and form a long-lasting memory. So uh, that means basically one experience of a sensory cue associated with food, and she's learned it. After okay. three times of the same, boom, she'll remember it tomorrow. And so they're, they're very good at doing that simple form of learning where they, you have these cues and they, they can learn, okay, what's the quality of this food that's associated with that? Um, mm -hmm. They are interesting because they have a brain that allows them to make quite complicated decisions about the various visual and olfactory signals that they, they perceive. So they can, they can smell and sense very fine differences in those sensory signals. Um, and they can also perform, we've, the, my lab and several others have been trying to understand what are the limits of this little brain, you know, mm -hmm. what kind of sophisticated types of learning can they do? Um, and can they form abstract rules that allow them to make a judgment about similar or different, which is something we do all the time and take for granted. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, you, how far does that reach yeah so i mean yeah. um because the world is is really different now i suppose for for bees i mean are they find are you finding that they're having to make really difficult decisions um you know between whether this thing that looks like a flower is actually plastic or that kind of thing like how what are you learning um i i'm not sure that um uh, that the change, the anthropogenic change in landscape use has challenged them cognitively so much as it may be challenging them to, to be able to find enough food in a landscape. Mm -hmm. um, the, the effort with which they have to find food and get enough to maintain a colony through the winter in a situation where the winters are more mild and the colony has to face potential poisoning by pesticides or um, other types of, of environmental contaminant. Those mm -hmm. things physiologically challenge them and make it very difficult for, for bees of any species to, to survive. Um, yeah. I would say really the major challenge to, to maintaining bee populations in any landscape is providing them with sufficient plants to yeah. to have forage throughout a, a summer season and and without that um, bees just can't find enough food to to survive and to produce enough offspring or to put on enough fat to overwinter mm -hmm. yeah so but it so it's it's really a, a physical challenge it's more a physical challenge i would say yeah 
So how does the, um, in an ideal world, how would, how, what kind of judgments are they having to make if, if there was lots of, um, there is one thing I can say though, there is, there, there is one very interesting thing that does affect their judgment and that does affect learning and memory, which is a a human, um, made compound. Mm -hmm. And, um, in, um, some flowering plant species like, uh, oilseed rape are defended by chemical compounds against flea beetles. Flea beetles go and destroy all the, the seeds that are produced for oil. That's the, it's a, an oil crop. And the companies that produce the seeds treat the seeds with pesticides that permeate all of the tissues of the plant. It's a very effective way of delivering a pesticide because it gets in all the tissues. You don't have to spray it everywhere. So it really stays localized mostly in the plant, although it does get into the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a great, it's actually a, a huge, an important invention, invention, but it winds up in the nectar and it winds up in the pollen and the compounds are compounds, which are not specific to a particular type of insect, which means mm-hmm. they can affect all insects, including visiting bees. Um, and these particular pesticides are called neonicotinoid pesticides. Um, they, neonicotinoid refers to, neo is new, the Latin word for new. Mm-hmm. and nicotine-like pesticide. So it's a, a new nicotine. Mm-hmm. And, and um, this new nicotine has a target in the insect brain called an acetylcholine receptor. Mm-hmm. Now, the acetylcholine receptor is a receptor found in n- neurons and in muscle tissue that basically allows fast transmission of information throughout a neural circuit or Mm -hmm. through a neuromuscular junction. And its major transmitter is is acetylcholine. Nicotine binds to this receptor and acts like acetylcholine. So it basically amplifies a signal. It it sits on the receptor and makes everything louder. Right, Um, okay. So, and you know, a smoker, when they smoke, they basically get a hit and it's, it's, it's intensifying their sensory experience, right? And it's, a, it's activating the, the circuits which are involved in reward in the brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, because so it's... they love uh, these, it. Yeah, exactly. Well, these receptors are found everywhere in the brain and they, they do all kinds of things. So you amplify everything. Right. And um, in, in insects, um, it's the same. Uh, they have these receptors all over. In fact, even more so, more diverse. Mm-hmm. And these these neonicotinoids are super agonists. They're really effective on those receptors at tiny amounts. Again, makes them a great pesticide specific to insects, doesn't affect mammals so much. When bees come into contact with these compounds in nectar, um, my lab actually found that it amplifies the rewarding properties of nectar. So if they drink a solution that contains neonicotinoid pesticides, they actually Mm -hmm. think the nectar is better. Right. And they are more likely to prefer that food source than to prefer, prefer unlaced nectar. So, so they're so getting pure. addicted to the nicotinoids? So they could be, yes. My lab is currently right. studying that, actually trying to, to determine whether over time um, we can, and using all of the criteria that are shown in mammals, whether you basically can addict a bee to uh, something like a pesticide. And right. that's a case where something that a, a person has in, engineered does affect the learning and memory of bees in a way which is de- detrimental to them because yeah. these pesticides have lots of other effects on them that affects their ability to move and to, to navigate. Um, it 
reduces their immune function. It has really large knock-on effects on their health, which then many papers have gone on to show um, are leading to B decline. So mm-hmm. it, that, that certainly is, is one, one case where, where humans have affected learning and memory in bees in a way mm-hmm. that, that was not intended in the beginning, but which is having potentially very bad consequences. Yeah. Is there work sort of on the flip side to show where we can sort of drive bees away from, say, cities or farms to sort of keep them safe by... by yeah, like um, making certain areas, almost like protected areas, more attractive to bees? Well, um, people are trying to plant flowering strips of, of plants alongside different kinds of crops to provide them with diverse pollen and nectar um, mm. so that they have more habitat. That's certainly happening. Um, in fact, cities are a great place for for forage for bees. And in, there are some researchers in the UK that have shown that, that bees prefer to forage in the city. At Francis really? Ratton's lab at the University of Sussex, guy yeah, was showing that bees are actually going out to forage in cities because there's a diversity of plants that flower all year long. Um, Jane Memmott at the University of Bristol was doing similar research and realized that, that urban spaces are actually quite good habitats for, for foraging bees and oh. was working on ways that we can improve um, floral habitat around cities to actually um, help bees. Mm. That's so interesting. Uh yeah well i mean but there are a lot of people that if you were to if they found a hive in their property would remove it right i mean there's got to be work too it's true um but many bees if they're just foraging there their hive is it could be kilometers off so right yeah even with mm-hmm. flowers there the foragers will come they'll visit the flowers and then they'll go how long will a 5k take a bee <laughs> How long do they go out for? That's a question I can't answer. <laughs> I should know how fast they can fly, but I don't know. Um, because you, you work mostly in, in a lab, right? How does yeah. that work? Yeah, I how work in you, a lab. Um, how so, do you study? Uh, do you have colonies in the lab that you study? We have some. We work with bumblebees as well as honeybees, and we keep the bumblebees in the lab. Um, the honeybees are kept outside so that they can feed themselves mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, they just don't survive very well inside. Um, mm. The research that I do inside, especially if it's just look, looking at learning and memory, we can take um, honeybee foragers and restrain them in a little harness. And oh. just like Pavlov's dog, the, the honeybee um, can be trained to put its mouth parts up towards food um, when it smells an odor. So you can blow a little floral scent at it, give it some sugar, and its little mouth parts will come up and drink the sugar. And you can train that reflex. Um, like Pavlov's salivating dog, which has meant that we can study learning and memory in bees and really easily uh, because mm-hmm. they're willing to do this. Um, it's, you can teach them to do it in a free flight situation. It's a little more complicated, but, but they'll do it mm-hmm. that way too. Um, mm-hmm. But you can, you can assay many, you know, thousands of individuals in a short time um, in these, these very controlled conditions in a laboratory setting um, if you're interested to understand the mechanisms of learning and memory. Yeah. And literally put a little... Put a little harness around them. Yeah, so it, it, we, used it, we used to use a drinking straw that was mm-hmm. modified, so we cut the straw and then put a piece of uh, gaffer tape in to hold the bee in, in place and then train the bee to, to learn to uh, associate scent with food. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned coffee earlier, and, I mean, does, do coffee plants, flowers, have... Um, do they give off caffeine or anything like that? Yeah, that's so that's addictive. a really curious question. 
Um, I was interested in addiction for a long time before I started studying pesticides, um, in part because, mm -hmm. as I told you before, I was interested in the plants that, that or the compounds that plants produce to keep herbivores from eating them. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of the compounds that we like, like nicotine, like caffeine, these yeah. compounds are actually defensive compounds produced by plants to prevent herbivores from eating them. Um, hmm. At low <laughs> concentrations, they make us feel good. At high concentrations, they could kill us. Right, and right. So um, I was interested to know if some of these compounds that are produced by plants can be perceived by bees and if they have some kind of pharmacological effect on the brain. Mm -hmm. And so I, I started studying this intensively uh, about 15 years ago. And um, at the time, uh, no one had looked at the nectar of coffee flowers um, to see whether there was actually caffeine in nectar. Because if there's no caffeine in the nectar, then there's really not any interesting question there. Yeah, um, we yeah. knew from citrus, however, that, the, that orange flowers and lemon flowers had caffeine. There was a study done by a group in Germany that was studying caffeine production in the Rutaceae, and it was just this random basic science study of everything found in the plant, and they looked in the nectar, the pollen, the flower, and every other part, and they found uh -huh. caffeine. So What's when I read that paper, in... I was like, oh, this is really interesting. What's it doing in oranges? Yeah, good question, huh? Um, but that plant actually has the capacity to produce it, and so right. it's a defensive compound, right, which it's using to, to prevent um, herbivory. Um, okay. Interestingly, it also winds up in the nectar and pollen. And so when I was reading, I'm like, oh, that's really curious. And I wasn't the only person, actually, that thought it was interesting. And there, was a f there were a few other studies done, um, one by an Israeli group and one by an Australian. Mm -hmm. And um, I, But I wanted to know if, if other plants uh, also had caffeine in the nectar, especially ones that we know well, like coffee, because mm -hmm. it, it, you get at a more evolutionary angle if you can find many different species that have co-evolved the same kind of mechanism. It, start, it starts to make you think that actually there is some selective pressure for having that as an adaptation. And then right. the question is, so what does it give you? I mean, why would you do this? Why would you put mm -hmm. it in there? It's a toxin. Why would it, you put a toxin in the nectar? Mm -hmm. That's the opposite of what you want to do. You want to attract, not repel. So um, I, had to, I looked in a, at both of those questions. One of them was to find out if it was in coffee nectar. And I went to Costa Rica because I knew of a, a research station there that had all these different... Uh, types of coffee growing and I asked them if I could go and collect flower, the floral nectar and pollen they were very generous and allowed me to do it oh, and so paradise. I collected all yeah exactly it was great <laughs> Costa Rica is so good coffee in Costa Rica <laughs> yeah awesome <laughs> and uh, I went and collected this nectar and I came back and I went to my friend Phil Stevenson's lab um, mm -hmm. at the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew is this great lab where they have all this equipment and they can measure all these phytochemicals and we found caffeine in the nectar. And we were able to measure the quantities of caffeine that was present. And using Across that information... Across all the species of different coffee. It's different. It, so it depends on the species. Some species don't have it. Um, oh, really? Some, some species have it in much higher concentration. Yeah. Um, and it's highly mm. variable even within the plant. So some flowers mm. have it and some don't. Mm. Uh, depends on the species. I would really like to do a more comprehensive survey of this, but I've never had the time or the funding really to pursue it in greater detail. Maybe yeah, in future. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really cool, isn't it? Um, yeah. Anyway, this was a labor of love. I had no funding for this at the time. I just did it because I wanted to. And so I, I went there, I went, collected this stuff, brought it back, gave it to Phil. We found out how much ca caffeine was there. Mm -hmm. And I had some undergraduate students in the lab at the time, um, training bees, and we 
we were using the concentrations found in nectar um, to see if they had any impact on the ability of the bee to learn the floral scent. These, these flowers produce a beautiful scent. It smells like jasmine. It's like really strong, really beautiful. Um, wow. And the same with, I don't know if you've been in an orange grove in, in springtime. It's just this incredible smell. It's, the flowers are intoxicating. They're just wonderful. Is it similar so, to the coffee? Um, Coffee is more like jasmine. It has a mm -hmm. kind of more um, uh, night-blooming jasmine. I don't know exactly what those compounds are. I should know. Um, mm. But they, they both are flowers that produce a lot of scent, and they produce a lot of nectar, and a lot of pollinators come there. Mm -hmm. So, And we now know that the amount of caffeine that was found in the nectar of both, we use that information then to train bees with uh, a solution that was like nectar to, do, to learn this very simple form of conditioning. Can they learn that a scent predicts food. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that when you add caffeine to the nectar, they learn a little bit faster, but more importantly, they remember that smell longer if there was caffeine in it. So caffeine is actually helping them to remember the floral scent so that they go back to other plants of the same species and take the pollen to other places. But conversely, it's for us meant to put us off taking those plants. Well. We don't eat coffee. Most normal people will not eat a coffee bean, right? Yeah. If you yeah, eat a handful yeah, yeah. of coffee beans, you'll feel like shit. So yes, pardon yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> <For the podcast. laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right? Um, so you don't really eat the coffee beans yeah. to get nutrition. What we're yeah. doing is we are using it as a drug because in a little amount, it feels good. And it yeah. does actually increase our attention. And it does actually help us to remember. And in fact, another group took the information from my paper and then did a study in people and showed that there was a small effect on the ability to learn and What's remember information that? in humans. That is a great reason to drink more coffee and also super interesting. Yes, Ooh. isn't it? <laughs> As a sort of side, I wonder what the evolutionary purpose of us enjoying floral senses. Have you, do you know anything about that? Like, why do we smell a flower and think it smells... Amazing. I, I think it's just the consequence of the fact that we have an olfactory system, which is, is it's been produced by natural selection to perform mm -hmm. the same kind of task as a bee's, a, a bee's sense of smell. Mm -hmm. And that is to take a complex blend of chemical volatile compounds and form a percept that we can use to identify an object. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it allows us then to, to, we perceive these compounds which are produced by plants, some of which are actually not very good, nice smelling. There are certain plants that smell like carrion and, you know, and that's, if there's a purpose to that, actually, those carrion flowers, they are trying to get flies to come to pollinate them. So they're using a chemical oh. signal which is, is, is meaningful to that fly and, and deceiving them. Um, oh, in the case of a bee coming to a flower, there's no a priori there necessarily that the, the flower, you know, those scents produced by flowers have any meaning to that bee. Mm -hmm. Although very interestingly, a colleague of mine um, at the University of Zurich um, has found that, or has a very strong hypothesis that a lot of the scents that are produced by plants actually were originally the pheromones used by these insects as signals. Um, and that, that helps to attract them to that object in the first place. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. bees use all kinds of smells for loads of other purposes, right? They signal to each other through smell. They know the smell of their own colony. They know the smell of their queen. Their queen produces compounds which actually act like drugs to control that colony. 
Um, the workers themselves communicate through smell. Um, they, when, if you get stung by a bee or if there's an intruder, they produce an alarm pheromone that smells like bananas. And that, that attracts all the other bees and drives them crazy so that they then sting the target. They produce scent um, to, to call other bees to a location. Uh, something called the Nazanoff pheromone produces this really floral smell that says, come here, and then they smell it and they go there. So they, they are really olfactory animal. We know of sort of pheromones as, you know, talking about, oh, you know, we're letting off each other's pheromones and we're actually attracted to that. But bees, they, that's like a multitude of their different forms of communication is done that way. Yes. So, so it's, um, just... it's through scent. You're absolutely right. So in a, in a colony, they're, they're a very olfactory animal that uses these chemical signals all the time to, to in, in, in lieu of language, right? In lieu of the fact that they can't talk to each other. They can, they use scent. And... Um, a lot of these compounds or these smells, they have an innate meaning to the animal, right? So it's, you know, alarm, Woo! you know, you know what it is. It's, there's no confusing it. Um, okay. But th because they have this olfactory system that's tuned to many different compounds, it, it also enables them then to smell all these weird general things that are in their environment. So um, uh, the smell of the plants that they might visit for food. A lot of plants emit all kinds of volatile compounds. And insects and animals use those compounds to orient. I mean, like a pine tree, you can smell it from yards away, right? Mm. So um, it's not surprising in a way that plants would have also evolved a chemical signaling mechanism for an insect pollinator, right? To say, look, I'm over here, you know, mm. and come over here. And, and then it becomes, you know, our sort of separate signal um, that that insect can use to identify food. Um, but it just because it's a complex blend of these these compounds that we can already detect, we have a system that's pretty much pre-selected to allow us to perceive the flower. It's not there's no relationship necessarily between us and the flower, unless we've bred those plants to produce that, which we do. Um, mm -hmm. But in the wild, not necessarily. It's just a consequence of our sort of enlightened state on Earth that that flower exists and. And we are here at the same time. And and it makes sense as well that flies are attracted to things that we don't like because they, you know... The yeah, they, the they smell of carry-on, it's a clear... You know, the, the microbes that produce the rotting sulfur, sulfur compounds, right? Yeah. That's a clear signal of something dead. We know it. Flies know it. Flies go there because there's food and they, they have evolved the ability to recognize that, that smell and associate it directly without having to learn it. Um, yeah. That that there's dead stuff there. Um, what's interesting is that a plant can infiltrate that signal and then take advantage of a fly to pollinate um, just simply by smelling like something dead, rotting carcass. You got these flies around, maybe no bees where you are, you know, and then suddenly you've got you trap these flies. They get covered in pollen and they go off to another carry-on flower. They get yeah. confused. Yeah. Oh my God, so interesting. With the with the way that um, bees in hives communicate. Um, and, and understand each other. It, it, would two bees from two separate hives be able to, to talk to each other? Do they have like a, a general yes. language? So they do have a general language through pheromones. And in addition to that, they can detect the smell of another colony. So, and they, they're enemies actually. Um, they, although you get drift in bee colonies, especially if the beekeepers keeping all the colonies near each other, some bees go there, some go there. And especially if they're all busy and they're all collecting food, they don't right. mind too much. Right, but, like Europe, you can kind of you know move around, but maybe <laughs> other sides yeah. of the world, <laughs> we're more like. Mm. 
<laughs> yeah, a bit like that. Um, but uh, the, the when times get tough, um, the bees start to pay attention to the smell of their colony nest nestmates, and they there are guards at the entrance, and the guards they vet everybody that comes through, and they do it by smell, and they can they can detect if that bee re is not a member of their colony, and if they are not, they'll throw them out or try to kill them, because bees will rob each other. So intruders yeah. from other colonies will come in and start stealing nectar for, and honey out of the colony and take it away. So they're, they, in times of, when times get tough, then, then bees, bees can recognize intruders. Right, and they can sense other hives and go, like, oh, let's, let's see if they've got anything because we, yes. we're suffering. Yeah. And yeah. like you said earlier about kicking, kicking competing bees out, out in the world, they'll, they'll compete. That's... Yeah, they have to do this with wasps too. Wasps come right. to bee colonies to kill larvae and to kill adult bees. Um, they, they eat them. Um, oh. And so they have to be able to detect intruders of that kind too and to, to fight them off. Um, mm -hmm. There's this huge scare in the U.S. about this Asian hornet. I don't know if you've seen these massive wasps from Japan. They are mm -hmm. truly yes. magnificent and scary. Um, but they eat bees. So they, they will munch through an entire colony. They just basically crunch through and eat the, the thorax, which is the meaty part of the bee, and throw everything out. Um, <sighs> I know it's disgusting. It, it's yeah. incredible. Um, but it, there's video footage you can see online of bees. Bees have learned to overcome these wasps by jumping on them and heating them up. So they overheat them and basically cook the, the wasp alive um, in order to kill it. Because there's How no they... other defense they have. They can't, they can't kill that wasp. The wasp mm. is too tough. Um, mm. But that way they can kill it if they all jump on it and, and burn it. Th that must be like, you know, hundreds of bees. It is, it's hundreds. Sort of surround. Yeah, but they can shiver so they can produce energy that way, or heat that way. They do that mm -hmm. in winter. And so they can raise the temperature of the wasp to a point where the wasp can't make it. And that kills it. Is that something that they've always done we know that this is a no. really old defense nope just those populations that live in japan where they're under very intense selection by those wasps know how to do this and that's a problem if you have this wasp invading you know the u.s or canada because yeah. the bee populations there are not prepared for a predator of that kind so the wasp could potentially go in and completely destroy those colonies yeah do you think there's any chance that we might see that these bees that are unprepared start doing that and we'll, we'll sort of think maybe this is a... It have to, you'd have to allow for selection of the colonies to do that, right? The problem yeah. is they're so intensively managed by people that you might not wind up with a situation where that, that could occur. So you don't yeah. have these natural mating populations um, where you're, you know, basically the wasps are killing off every, every other colony that can't do it and only those that, that have managed to sort that out are the ones yeah. that make it. Yeah, um, yeah. So... We know that they can, um, they can sense things that they're, they're really attracted to and sometimes pesticides can slip through the net because they get, you know, they start to like certain parts that coincide with it. Are they, are they any good at sensing things that are really bad for them, like the bad smelling flowers or... That's a great question too. You're asking all the right questions. This is a, a, a this is a, a topic that I'm really interested in and I have been for a while. Um, oh, that's great. Our... Um, my lab is trying to figure out if bees actually have a sense of bitter taste. Um, mm. They can sense some things that taste bitter, but they're not very good at it. And especially because they're drinking some really sticky, sweet drink, 
if the, the toxin's actually in uh, something like nectar, it makes it all that more difficult to detect. And it's true for us, too. You know, if you don't like the taste of coffee, you just heap in the sugar, right? And yeah. then it tastes nice yeah, and you can take it down. orange juice to your vodka and you can get yeah, it Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We do exactly the same thing, right? We don't want to taste yeah. these bitter, bitter, nasty things. And um, But even in the absence of sugar, um, bees just don't have uh, a taste system that is very good at detecting bitter things. And it's because they haven't really had strong selection on their taste system to to have to do this. I mean, they okay. co-evolve with plants as mutualists. Um, the plant is not trying to poison them, the plant's trying to entice them. So it's, in an animal that's a herbivore that's eating leaves, or eating a bunch of different things like us, um, we have to be able to taste it and see if it's poisonous and then throw it off if it's bad. Or right. if we eat it and it makes us sick, we need to be able to associate the, the taste and smell of that food with the fact we just got really sick from whatever was in it. Um, right. Bees have these mechanisms. They can learn to avoid the taste and smell of things that are associated with malaise. Um, but they're not very good at, at first at detecting the actual nasty compound if it's in a really sticky nectar solution. Um, and my lab at the moment is trying to undercover, you know, what is the principle of that? What things can they taste and what things can they not detect at all? Um, so that we have a more complete picture of, of the bee's bitter taste system. Right. So, I mean, how are you doing that? Are you sort of, what are you using to test whether they... Um, well, we can, we can do little behavioral assays where we put a bee in a tube and we give them a choice and we, we look at their mouth parts and it's basically the same thing as if, you know, you had a blindfold and I kind of put something on your tongue and you, I asked you if it tasted bitter or not. So right. we, we can ask them, you know, in a behavioral assay, you know, can you detect this compound or not? Will you drink it and how much? Um... And, but we're also interested in the actual neural mechanism of, of how these things are sensed in the insect um, taste system and how that information is transmitted to the brain. So we are, are recording from the neurons that are found in their mouth parts to understand um, whether they even have uh, the mechanism that allows them to detect these compounds in the first place and what it is. What, it, what kind of mechanism is it? Um, is it different to mechanisms that exist in other insects? Um, so that's the, the topic that, that my lab is currently studying now. That's incredible. <laughs> because I feel like um, we hear a lot about, you know, bees being sort of like a canary in the coal mine, you know, like pollinators in general. Once we see them suffering, we know that something really, something bad is going on out there. Um, I mean, that's what eventually your work will trickle out to helping people understand that, right? Well, uh, the work that I'm doing that's applied and that's really um, looking at the causes for bee decline, I would say that, um, that the fact that we found that these pesticides have such a strong impact on a non-target organism, you know, a, a, an animal that we actually really need and depend on mm. for pollination of our crops, um, and the wild plant species that are important to us too, um, the fact that we see that, that people's behaviors and the practices that we have in agriculture um, are having such a strong impact on, unintentionally on bees should be taken as a warning signal that we are losing biodiversity of many different organisms, not mm -hmm. just bees. And that is absolutely true. Um, it is... We are in an unprecedented time in our history. 
And we must take account of it. We have a vanishingly small amount of time to do anything, and we must act now, or we will lose vast amounts of biodiversity on this planet, and it will be to our detriment. Um, mm -hmm. This is something I think people don't quite understand, is you know, why, why should we care that we're losing biodiversity? Biodiversity is our wealth, it's our future, it's our children's future. The things, we don't even know the, un, the consequences of the loss of this biodiversity and how it's going to impact our basic welfare. But the moral reason is that we don't have the right to destroy every living thing on this planet. It is not right for us to not care about the loss of these organisms. And we must, we must start to change this point of view in the human population. Our well-being depends on it. Our future on this planet depends on it. Mm -hmm. Very, very viscerally. It's, it's not like saying, you know, it's going to be... Um, it's going to be difficult for us or it's going to be not as beautiful or we won't be able to have all of these beautiful places. It's like, no, we won't be able to eat food. We will die. <laughs> we, won't, we won't be yeah. able to breathe the air. We won't be yes. able to take a dip in the ocean. Yeah. And it's really close. It is. It's, and it's, it's the, also the difference between living in a survival state and living your best life, mm. right? We all value nature. We all love to be outside in plants and flowers and with animals, you know, th these things are things that make our life richer, right? They are, the, the beauty of the natural world is, is life itself. Mm -hmm. If we mm -hmm. kill it and we do it for profit or for a short-term gain that has to do with the food we waste, with the decisions we make to support a human population, mm -hmm. it is a cheap and an irresponsible decision. It is one that, that is basically squandering the wealth of the world for a very short-term gain that is yeah. for, for the benefit of only a few individuals. And yeah. I, I think it's something that we must very seriously address now before it's too late. Yeah. How much um, of like the work that you, your colleagues do and your peers across the world is now sort of well, is, is thinking in this way, is thinking, I'm, these, these things that I'm researching, which may seem insignificant on the surface, it's all building a, a huge literature to, to, to make these, this way of thinking the only possible way of thinking about the world. Is, we, is that what you're finding? We depend on you. We depend on the media to actually right. care enough about the work that is being done by scientists mm -hmm. to transmit this information to the public so that they know that they need to do something. I, I think it's very hard as scientists actually to, to make this translation. We've been asked in recent years by funders to make more of an effort to make our work translatable. And certainly I would say there's been a strong impact on UK science um, that has moved it in that direction. Um, all of us want to do work that is relevant, that is interesting. Um, we always have this tension between trying to do something that's applied and, and relevant versus, you know, just our basic curiosity. And, and there are good reasons for doing both. Um, mm. But I, I, I think that, um, that it doesn't take much more evidence, right? It, it really, we have enough evidence now to act, to do the right thing for the climate, for the, the biodiversity of the earth. What mm. we need to have is the will in government and that's not just one government, it's all governments to actually protect and defend biodiversity, to 
to control human populations, to responsibly produce food in a way that is, is beneficial for us, but that also um, has some form of stewardship, recognizing that people are going to have to use this land for generations after the current generation. And, and unfortunately, I don't, I, I think the practices that are currently in place, while people have been trying to change that, are happening too slow. We need to listen to David Attenborough. We need to stop using plastics so much because those things are destroying biodiversity. We need to start to care about the way that we produce food so that we aren't poisoning every animal in the landscape in order to protect an oilseed rape crop yield of 10%. Mm -hmm. These things are, these calculations are made by people who don't care or don't understand the implications of the decisions that they make. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and we, as the people, right, of, the, of this planet, need as a collective whole to start to care more. And we need people like you in the media to actually go out and help be the champions of this and to, to make people aware so that at least people can make more informed decisions about, about their future and their children's future. Yeah, that, I mean, that's exactly the point of what I wanted to do with this whole channel is like talk to people who are finding these really fascinating things about the way the natural world works and just share that and make it meaningful because there's a reason why people love planet earth and there's a reason why people love to take a sunday morning walk through the woods we love nature and although it may seem like we're willing to sacrifice it to have you know fish and chips or an imported avocado it's like no actually if if people really understood the choice that they were making i don't think many people would make that choice yes i think you're right um yeah, because yeah, because it is incredible. I mean, going back to bees, maybe. <laughs> um, I think there was one other sort of like area that I wanted to to talk to you about. Um, just the way like that we look at. We've been talking a lot about bees as individuals, and we talked a little bit about how they communicate in the hive. But I know that you've done lots of research, and there's a whole load of understanding about how they work as a whole, right? I think people think of insects and uh, uh, animals like that as sort of very simple on their own, and then as part of their colony or their group, quite complex and quite, um, you know, quite like the way that they work is is insane um so how does a hive work <laughs> <laughs> how does it how does it go from a perfect you social society to prevent anarchy basically? yeah and how does it go from you know how is it one queen who survives all of this time like how how is that one bee picked out to lead a whole oh, thousands of bees that's a, a really lovely question and it has been pursued <laughs> by many um, it turns out that just about any egg that's laid by a queen can become or can become a queen. So oh, right. that at, at the time that the egg is laid, it's not it's not determined to become the queen. Mm -hmm. What determines whether she becomes a queen or not is what she's fed when she's a developing larvae. So when this was discovered um, by the by um, uh, a scientist in Texas in the 1950s, it really changed beekeeping. It meant that beekeepers could take the eggs that were laid in worker cells 
if it if they were laid within three days, mm-hmm. and place them into a larger cup or a larger cell, and the bees would think that they had to rear a queen from the eggs that were laid in the in the worker cells, and they so it it meant that you could basically produce as many queens as you wanted in a colony, and then you could rear queens and sell them and sell bees that way. It really revolutionized beekeeping, actually, to, to know this, that this was fact. Mm. And what's interesting about it is that it means that, that um, provided that that larva gets the right food, she can become a reproductive. So it basically sets her off on a developmental, developmental trajectory in which she becomes fecund, and she has fully developed ovaries, and she has a certain number of traits which characterize her as a queen. She has a spermatheca. She's able to mate. Um, she's much larger than the others. Um, if she is born into a worker cell and she gets fed as a worker, she is fed less food. The food is slightly different. Mm-hmm. And she becomes a worker. And she doesn't have strong ovaries. She can't mate. She doesn't have the apparatus to store sperm. Um, she can't... Uh, do the deed, as it were, and she also has a totally different physiology. Mm-hmm. So the queen, um, when she becomes an adult, emerges from her cell, and she'll live for a few days within the colony if there's only one of her. The other queen will probably still be there, her mother, but um, the new virgin queen will stay, and then she will go out on a mating flight, and she will mate with up to 20 males. So, yeah, in one day. What a right? christening. So she, yeah, exactly. And they all die as well. <laughs> I know. It's, Who needs them? It's quite, quite dramatic in the bee colony. So, so, she does this mating flight. All these males compete to mate with her. They have these really explosive ejaculations. She stores all the sperm. She comes back. And then when she comes back, the old queen takes off with about half the colony to found a new colony. The new queen stays behind in the, co- in the remaining colony and oh. basically continues it. So the oh. risky behavior is taken over by the old queen. She takes off in a swarm with, with some of the, the bees and there she goes. So and they so found a the colony elsewhere. She only mates once in her life and then she yes. stays in, in the I mean, hive. she may have a few days of mating, but I, I think in, on, on average it's one day. And that sperm from... All of these different guys is with her her whole life. Those, yeah, so those... she stores all that sperm in this modified spermatheca, and she can use that sperm to fertilize eggs for her entire life. And in fact, queens queens basically become they start to die when they be, when they are no longer fecund. So right. when they are running out of sperm, basically, or eggs, they it's a process probably that's occurring both with their age, but also running out of those things. And she produces less queen pheromone, and eventually she she's done for. So they don't go through menopause like we do. We don't, they don't run out of eggs. When they run out of eggs, it's... That's right. pretty much it. Yeah. It, what, humans, it's funny, we do. And people have written about this. Um, the fact that we even have a menopause uh, means that, that older women are valuable to, in human societies. Yes. And mm. so the older individuals remain behind to basically in, in most early human societies to look after the, the children of the, the reproductives. So... Yeah. Um, Older women do play an important role in human societies, and that's why they're not basically terminated when they're no longer reproductive, or and also not reproductive, you know, for a longer longer period too. There might yeah, be two different two different but things happening there. Sort of like a whole generation. I mean, they're a wealth of knowledge and learning, right? Yeah, exactly. That's because why humans really... store all this information in their brains. Exactly. 
Yeah. That's why I was really interested in the sort of generational part of within the hive, whether that was something that was significant as um, how valuable they are. But I guess, does that mean then that in in a colony, there can be up to sort of 20 or so dads of, of that sperm? Is she storing all sperm yes. from all these different So dads? it means that there that it could be that, that there are 20 different patrilines in any given colony. Um, they're all descended from the same mother, but they may all have different fathers. And okay. there were researchers, uh, a very famous honeybee scientist named Tom Seeley um, did some really excellent work on this and showed that a honeybee colony that has this level of diversity um, actually is more adaptive, right? They do better in terms of having diversity in their behaviors and in their immune function that allow them to perform better um, in, in the face of environmental stress. So there are reasons why this happens. Um, now, for a eusocial society, a perfect eusocial society would probably prefer to have one male and one female because mm -hmm. they would be the most close, closely related. Um, but uh, in this case, there's a trade-off made there um, between the adaptive value of having diverse, a diverse population of sisters and being closely related um, to improve your fitness. Mm. So as long as they're related to the mum and they're all joined in that way, it's actually better to have a little bit of you're better at this and you're better at that and then because yeah. they have different jobs you know sort of assigned from birth right in the hive well actually every worker in the colony goes through a behavioral um, a different behavioral cast throughout its lifetime mm. so when they emerge as adults um, at that time uh, they're very new and soft and easily easily influenced by the queen's pheromone and the ones that actually take care of the queen are always these new bees that come um, slowly or very soon after their emergence. Within four days, they, be, they start to eat a lot of pollen. And when they eat pollen, they produce um, secretions, glandular secretions, that are basically like milk, which they feed to the larvae. So the nurse bees eat all the pollen in the colony that's brought in from the foragers. Mm -hmm. And they produce this milk for the larvae, and they tend all the larvae. So they, they're always over there feeding them, they feed the queen, they feed the drones, they feed all of the larvae, and they eat all the food. And they are basically acting like the nursemaids of the, the colony. Like and a about, bird will eat and then feed its chicks. More like a mammalian mother will eat like a steak dinner and then produce milk for her oh, offspring. And the, the okay. baby doesn't eat the steak, but it gets everything from the steak and the milk. Because the right. milk is perfect, it's got a perfect casein protein in it, it's got loads of sugar, uh, it's got lots of fat, all, it's got basically the perfect blend for a baby. Um, and she's made it, based on all the weird stuff she's eaten, her body's assembled it and then created this perfect food. Right. So, bees are doing the same thing. They're they're eating pollen, which may be suboptimal, but they eat lots of different kinds of pollen, they eat some honey, and then they make what is essentially milk which is basically becomes bee tissue. They don't even have a gut that goes all the way through. So the food just gets absorbed into their tissues. It's even better than milk, actually, because they don't even have to take a poo, right? They just eat it all, and it becomes them. So, yeah. Right. So it's, um, uh, the nurse bees, they're, they're the ones that do all the feeding. And then as they age, they, they get further and further away from the queen. They, they, are, they come to the sort of edge of the colony and they, they start to do guarding behavior, they begin to undertake, so they take out the dead ones, they do all this other stuff, they guard, which is slightly more um, dangerous. Uh, and then after they've spent a period doing those behaviors, 
they're away from the queen, their fat atrophies. So they, they lose all their body fat, um, their brain, um, some of the, the way that their brain is configured changes slightly, and um, they suddenly have a huge demand for sugar. And because they have no body fat, they're basically they're burning sugar, their flight muscles are ready to go, and they start to do foraging. So the forager is like a super athlete. Um, they, have a, they really need a lot of sugar all the time, and they um, are out doing this really highly demanding um, work, um, mm. collecting nectar and pollen, and using their brain all the time to do all this learning. So they, every bee in the colony goes through this ontogeny, where they've, they start as nurses and they eventually become foragers and guards and then foragers right so they sort of go through this this journey they all work like that that is so amazing and i mean to what extent are they sort of do they sort of think about things in terms of what's good for the hive you know are they part of they part of the hive or do they have selfish needs as well like when they're out foraging are they like oh just have a little bit for myself and well, they have to, so they have to have a little bit for themselves <laughs> they they'll have die. <laughs> but they, they're always, they, they are trying to optimize the, the amount of food that they are bringing back versus what they need. So they only mm -hmm. take enough food on board before they leave to get to where they need to go. Mm -hmm. And then they have spare to, to collect, and then they bring it back. So there's, there is this, con you're right, this is always optimization. And there is always, in any social society, there's always tension between what's best for you versus what's best for the, for the group that you're a member of. Um, mm -hmm. And this, you know, at, um, as we previously talked about, this is a, a very special form of socialism um, called eusociality, true socialism, where you have one reproductive individual and all the others are related to that individual in a very mm -hmm. close way. Um, and that's how they, they, this type of society is only, it's only possible to evolve this kind of society when you have um, inclusive fitness that arises as a result of the cooperative membership of that group. So, mm -hmm. in fact, if you are more related to your sisters than you would be to your own offspring, then it becomes advantageous for you to form a society where you're rearing your sister's children um, mm -hmm. in order to to uh, have some kind of advantage. And when they mm -hmm. work as a group, they can get more food, they can do all of these incredible behaviors like kill off predators or keep themselves warm or store food or rear the larvae in a more beautiful way, right, in a really reliable way. Um, mm -hmm. These kinds of behaviors and these kinds of, of societies can evolve. It's kind of a higher level society. It's the same as us, right? We have all these amazing equipment, you know, this iPhone and this computer and you know, we can do all these things, we have medicine, these things arise from our, our ability to work as a unit, right? Mm -hmm, because we mm -hmm. share information and we, we work together to a common goal. Um, it means that we can specialize in our societies. We have teachers and we have firemen and, you know, we have airplane pilots and, you know, we have everybody contributing to the society and all of those parts make a greater sum than their individual pieces. If mm -hmm. every individual had to do all their own food collection and all their, their own... Um, teaching of their kids and all of the all these other things we couldn't do it right and and that's you know historically that's maybe what we came from but mm -hmm. but we really live at a time now where we have a critical mass of well-educated people that can do all these amazing things and it means that our culture actually then permits each individual to have opportunities they wouldn't have otherwise same yeah. in a bee colony i mean exactly. they they have a much safer much more stable in much more adaptive organism when all of them work together um, yeah. and, and that's how this has evolved.
Yeah, I just wish that like bees don't question it, whereas we seem to think that you know some some people prefer a dog eat dog sort of world and sort of forget that we we work better if we stick together. Well, it, you know, it's funny. Um, there are always this is really the heart of of life on Earth. There are whenever um, it benefits an individual to cooperate, then a cooperative mm-hmm. scheme will evolve. Mm-hmm. Whenever it's more beneficial to work as an individual, then those selfish interests will evolve. And, and that's been the st- a huge uh, a topic of interest for biologists since Darwin. It, it's really important to understand the nuances of the conditions that give rise to cooperative behavior mm-hmm. um, versus selfish behavior and, and what kinds of conditions then promote those different things. Because in certain situations, we have to be selfish or else, or, mm-hmm. or not. And it, it, we can't expect humans to act the same way as bees because we don't have the same uh, inclusive fitness we mm-hmm. you know we you won't be rearing some random person's kids right because it's not you know unless you really want to have a child and you can't have your own and um, there's some benefit to you of that you know psychologically um, mm-hmm. it, because you don't have any direct outcome right there there's no real you know in a really core like visceral I'm a, a living being way mm-hmm. you have no no, no, no positive outcome. Mm-hmm. So, always in our societies, we have to, we have to, des- have to think carefully about how we construct um, human societies such that we don't put people in a conundrum where they are being forced to do things which are not to their own interest, right? Because then they will find ways to cheat, or you know, you you have to punish those that cheat. And it's not yeah. true to say that a honeybee colony doesn't have cheaters because it does, and people have oh, studied yeah. this. Yes, and there are there are anarchic honeybee societies, and they do evolve. And there are cheaters that will lay eggs that that um, are drone laying uh, workers. So and what, why? What do they get out of it? Um, if they go undetected uh, as uh, layers of eggs, then they they are um, basically benefiting. Um, they are improving their own individual fitness, um, mm-hmm. but it's. Uh, it's very heavily policed within that colony in order to allow um, a eusocial society to evolve. So mm. um, workers punish other workers by eating the eggs and beating up the worker that does the laying. If, if she's perceived to actually even produce pheromones like a queen, which some of these sort of semi-queens do, mm-hmm. she can be killed. So they're, they're very careful about um, policing within the colony in order to keep that social cohesion. So similar with us, we have, you know this is what we think is right and this is how we can achieve the most as a whole and then we're going to, anything that doesn't fit into that, we're going to shut it down. We have to have laws in order for there to be a, like a, a social agreement or a contract amongst all of us, right? Yeah, we have yeah. to have those things where we, we agree to treat each other in certain ways or else yeah. we can't work as a cooperative system. And well, as long it, as most people are, are, are obeying that and working within those, those confines you'll have a cooperative society that benefits everyone. Um, yeah. The problem comes when, when people are able to cheat that, that particular setting and they do so to their own massive benefit relative to everyone else. Mm. Mm. And then we get to we can live a much better life, like you said before. So what is, um, maybe to sort of round off here, your work is obviously we've we've sort of been through the different areas that you're looking into. What else are people sort of 
trying to figure out when it comes to bees, what's the future? Because it seems like studying bees has, has been sort of like, you know, at least a hundred years and, and beekeeping before I think is quite an, an ancient trade, right? How, what, what lies ahead um, as, we, as we try to understand and help the bees? I think one of the really interesting questions uh, in neuroscience at the moment is to understand what a small insect brain can do Mm. and how, what the differences really are between a large complex brain like ours and a small brain like a honeybee's brain or a fruit fly's brain can do. Mm. Um, we're at a, a place in the history of science where we're starting to get a handle on how these brains um, are built, basically. In flies, we now have a complete atlas of the fruit fly brain and it was a huge achievement to, to get to a point where we know how all these neurons are wired and where they connect and what they do. And, um, and now it's really, it's taking that information and really working out what a brain is and how mm. it functions and why it is the way it is. There are a lot of really great questions that are going to arise from, from research of this kind. And I think in the future, Bees are really sophisticated, and compared to a fruit fly, they do all kinds of interesting things, like communicate, and uh, they, you know, they navigate, and they have all this, this amazing behavior, and it will be fascinating if we have the tools to understand how their brain is, is built to work out what those circuits, the design of those circuits, those kinds of things can inform AI, they, can, mm. they give us real insight into the way our own brains work and um, the, the nature of neural circuits. I think that's a really exciting area in the future, and at least in, in one very small area of bee science. Yeah, I, I mean, because they make up so many of the brains that are on Earth, right? Insect brains. Yes, that's right. But, but a lot of what we learn about the way an insect brain works, the principles are the same mm. in our own brains. Many of them are shared. Even if the, the architecture itself is not exactly the same, we have to do the same kinds of things. So trying to understand how a neural circuit solves that problem is really a fascinating area of research. And um, I believe that major insights are going to be um, uh, arriving in the next 10 years um, from what we know about insect brains in terms of how a brain functions. Yeah. Wow. Well, I hope to get to talk to you again about it um, yeah, in a I few years when, when we know some more. Thank you so much. It's been so great talking to you. Um, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Covered so so much. I feel like there's a whole sequel to this of, you know, different different um, ways things impact bees and and what lies ahead for them as we we keep um, keep doing things in the world. Yeah, I mean, if you um, think of something else you would like me to help out with, I'm more than happy to. Oh, that's so I cool. also have other Thank friends you. too, so it, and I'm sure that would be interesting to talk to you if you wanted other sources yeah. for information. I would love that. I think, yeah, like I'll have a look and. I'll see. send you an email, and I can just uh, I'll mention yeah. a few names of people that I know that you might be interested to talk to about specific subjects. Yeah. So if you choose to, that would be so cool. Yeah, yeah it was really nice. To Thanks talk so to you. much. You have some great questions. Yeah. you have a really uh, curious mind. It's uh, it, it was fun. I, do. I really do. I'm trying to imagine it in my head and then bring it back each yeah, time. I hope you get a chance to go yeah. to the tropics because the tropics are really amazing for all animals of all kinds. Yeah, yeah blow, blow your mind uh, and go as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And um, yeah, please email me and I'll, I'll we'll talk to you again. Soon. All right. I'm going to go and have lunch. Cool. Yeah. Out. <laughs> you must be hungry. <laughs> <All> <laughs> Thank right. you so much. Enjoy. Okay. Bye -bye. See ya.